This is building in all the intelligence that we have to project players. Okay. It's about getting things down to one number. Using stats the way we read them, we'll find value in players that nobody else can see. In April of 2005, a few months after Alex Rodriguez and the Yankees blew a 3-0 lead against the Boston Red Sox in the 2004 American League Championship Series, a few anonymous TV writers put up a blog called Fire Joe Morgan. Named for ESPN's lead baseball analyst, who they wanted to get fired, the blog, which was subtitled Where Bad Sports Journalism Comes to Die, really took aim at a whole slew of hacks in baseball media who relied on outdated and disproven cliches. You see, by the mid-2000s, something was happening in baseball. Moneyball, the best-selling book by Michael Lewis about Billy Bean and the Oakland Athletics front office, had come out in 2003 and helped bring a new brand of baseball analysis into the mainstream. Known as Sabermetrics, named for the Society of American Baseball Research, or Saber, it was most commonly associated with complicated new formulas and weird acronyms like VORP, and war, and BABIP. But the thing that really made it popular was the way it challenged conventional wisdom, specifically about what made baseball players valuable. Jenna, two thoughts occur to me here. First, we really, as a baseball-watching populace, kind of went away from VORP, huh? (laughs) It's just too weird to say VORP, yeah. (laughs) And then secondly, for a long time, like into my college years, I thought sabermetrics were just like the term for statistics in general. I didn't realize that it just applied to baseball. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people just think it's a statistics term. They don't realize that it's it comes from this this organization. They don't realize it's an acronym for anything. It's become so mainstream that it's it, its origins are forgotten. And Fire Joe Morgan really took that sabermetric spirit and quickly became one of the smartest and funniest places on the internet, at least for baseball fans. It was just a bare-bones site with a simple concept and layout. They'd find some stupid article or online chat or op-ed, and they would include the text of what Joe Morgan or Mike Lupica or Skip Bayless had said. They'd put that part in bowls. And then underneath, in regular type, they would just make fun of it mercilessly. And a recurring presence on the blog was Alex Rodriguez who was the subject of so many stupid articles. It was funny because the guys behind the blog were all big Red Sox fans who had no love for A-Rod, but lazy writers couldn't help but make dumb arguments about Rodriguez, and the Fire Joe Morgan guys hated dumb arguments even more than they hated A-Rod. They found articles saying that even though Rodriguez was a Yankee, he wasn't a true Yankee, saying that teams were better off with David Eckstein than A-Rod, saying that he should be traded for Joe Creedy, They found articles calling him out for a slump in the middle of an MVP season, articles that criticized him for the way he walked, the way he talked, articles that compared him to obscure country music artists for some reason. As one of them wrote on the blog, I keep thinking these brain-damaged articles will have to taper off eventually, but they don't. And now here I am again, taking the long way to get information that proves how dumb these people are. What made this all so ironic Aside from the sight of avowed Boston fans writing thousands of words in defense of Alex Rodriguez, was that the sabermetric revolution was really a response to the free agency boom that A-Rod had benefited from. People often miss this aspect of Moneyball, even though it's right there in the title. The whole point was to pay players less money. (laughs) What Lewis was writing about, what made Billy Bean and the A's so distinct, was that they were looking for statistical edges that other teams weren't paying attention to so that they could find players who were undervalued on the open market. Billy, of the 20,000 notable players for us to consider, I believe that there is a championship team of 25 people 
that we could afford because everyone else in baseball undervalues them. Like an island of misfit toys. Billy, this is Chad Bradford. He's a relief pitcher. He is one of the most undervalued players in baseball. His defect is that he throws funny. Nobody in the big leagues cares about him because he looks funny. This guy could be not just the best pitcher in our bullpen, but one of the most effective relief pitchers in all of baseball. This guy should cost $3 million a year. We can get him for 237000 But Alex Rodriguez was not undervalued, so he could never be the darling of the Moneyball set. In fact, in the Moneyball movie, his face is kind of like in the intro montage is the last one, and it kind of haunts the movie. He's sort of like, what's wrong with baseball? And so in the mid-aughts, baseball fandom was divided between two groups. On Fire Joe Morgan, this divide was represented between the bold-type people, those Joe Morgan, Mike Lupica kind of hacks, and then the regular-type people, those who are embracing the sabermetric model. And to the bold-type people, these new stats from the sabermetrics set were just a way to ruin baseball with math. And to the regular-type people... Rejecting those numbers was arrogant, it was stupid, and lazy. And caught between the two sides was A-Rod. The old-timers didn't like him because he didn't win, he wasn't clutch, and he wasn't a team player. He was selfish and didn't carry himself the way a baseball star was supposed to carry himself. In other words, he made too much money. But uh, the stat heads, the regular type people, they liked A-Rod because he had the numbers to back up his play. They knew things like clutch players or true Yankees. These concepts were usually just illusions caused by confirmation bias and selection effects. But to them, he was too good, too obviously valuable for a GM to scoop up on a team-friendly deal. You could only get a guy like A-Rod by signing him to a big contract, and that was no way for a Moneyball team to behave. In other words, he made too much money. I'm John. I'm James. We're the Lefty Specialists. And this is the A-Rod Chronicles. Chapter 5, No True Yankee. Going into the 2005 season, the New York Yankees' first season post-playoff collapse against the Red Sox when the Red Sox captured their first World Series title since 1918. The Yankees tried to remake their pitching rotation. They signed, sorry, Carl Pavano and Jarrett Wright, and then traded for Randy Johnson, who had been Alex's teammate in Seattle. Together, these three starters cost nearly $80 million that year. Altogether, the Yankees' payroll jumped from $182 million to over $200 million, over $80 million in the next highest team in baseball. And yet the team was, if anything, even more dysfunctional than the year before. For one, none of the starters they added were as good as they hoped. Randy Johnson had a decent year, but was diminished from the dominant ace he'd been in Seattle, Houston, and Arizona. And Pavano and Wright were awful. Two of the worst free agent signings the Yankees would ever make, and like borderline unpitchable when they were even healthy. They were also one of the worst fielding teams in modern history, which certainly didn't help the pitching. They had the lowest defensive run saved and ultimate zone rating of any team since those stats started being measured. For years, the Yankees had been sacrificing defense to add offense. 
replacing Tino Martinez with Jason Giambi, signing Gary Sheffield, keeping Bernie Williams in center into his mid forties <laughs> <laughs> and moving Alex Rodriguez to third to keep Jeter at shortstop. And 2005, that was the year that this all finally caught up with them. All these flaws were evident immediately. Through 30 games, the Yankees were 11-19 and and 9 games out of first place. They had given up at least 6 runs in more than half of those games. Around then, they tried injecting some youth into the roster, bringing up Robinson Cano and Chen-Ming Wong, and then they rebounded, but as late as mid-June, they were still below 500. It was starting to look like maybe the run of Yankee dominance would end, that the 2004 ALCS might have marked an official changing of the guard in the American League East. But midway through the season, they started to turn things around. Starting on July 2nd, they won 11 out of 13 games and climbed ever so briefly into first place. They hadn't really figured out their pitching or defense, but one thing they could do was hit. They were second in the league in runs scored, and they had above average hitters at every single position. The centerpiece of the lineup was Alex Rodriguez. 2004 had been a slightly down year for A-Rod. Even though he was the Yankees' best hitter that year, he wasn't quite the otherworldly self he'd been the previous seasons in Texas. But in 2005, he returned to form. He again led the league in home runs, runs scored, slugging percentage, OPS, and OPS+. According to Baseball Reference War, it was his best season since leaving Seattle. It was another one of his arguably best season of his career seasons right up there with 1996, 1998, 2000, 2002, and 2003. A-Rod launches one deep to left. Everyone turns and watches. See ya! A monster home run by Alex Rodriguez as the Yankees go back-to-back. Here in the third, they lead 4-0. Everybody's looking to see where that one landed. Chop that up into singles. You lead the league in hitting. I don't actually think it was his best season, but it's probably his most underrated season, which I say because of how the MVP voting shook out that year. For most of 2005, the AL MVP contest was seen as a two-horse race between Alex Rodriguez and Boston's David Ortiz. And in the end, A-Rod got 16 first-place votes, while Ortiz got 11, giving A-Rod a pretty narrow victory. When you look at the numbers, it's really hard to fathom how it was even that close. Rodriguez led Ortiz in practically every category. He had more hits, more home runs, a better batting average, a better on-base percentage, a higher slugging percentage, more total bases, more stolen bases, and more runs scored. The only really significant categories Ortiz led in were walks and RBIs. And crucially, Ortiz did not play any defense. Alex wasn't a gold glove third baseman, but he at least provided some value there, while Ortiz was a full-time designated hitter who only made 10 starts at first base in interleague games. To this day, nobody who was primarily a designated hitter has ever won an MVP award. Unless you want to count Shohei Otani, but Ortiz didn't pitch as far as I remember. <laughs> yeah. And this was, this was actually the closest anyone's ever come to winning the award as a full-time DH, even though, again, Ortiz was behind A-Rod in almost every offensive category. So what the hell? What explains this close vote? Well, this was really a proxy fight over the value of clutch hitting and the specter of the 2004 ALCS hung over the whole season. Alex Rodriguez may have gotten more hits, but Ortiz got the big hits, just like he had in the 2004 playoffs. He was a quote-unquote clutch player, which is why his team was the defending world champions and A-Rod's team had blown a 3-0 series lead. And look, the thing about clutchness debates is that you can always find evidence for whatever you want. 
There's no consistent definition of a clutch hit. So people's assessments of who was clutch rely on memory, which is famously fallible. People remember the clutch hits of guys they like, and they forget about the ones from guys they don't. And you can usually find numbers to back this up, but it's really statistical noise. So for, tw- for, so for example, in 2005, David Ortiz's performance in what Baseball Reference describes as high leverage situations was significantly better than A-Rod's. But then again, Alex was better in tie games. So does that mean if the game is 3-3, three to three, you want A-Rod up? But if it's 4-3, to three, you want Ortiz up? No, of course not. It's just an illusion caused by random variance. And no matter how much statistical evidence you point to saying that clutch hitters don't exist, most people won't believe you. Fans, particularly the old timers or, or the bold typers from Fire Joe Morgan, they want to believe that clutchness is an innate ability some players have that others just don't. There's an almost moral element to this idea. Nobody thinks the ability to hit a baseball is a sign of personal character, but the ability to hit a baseball in a clutch situation. That's a sign of mental toughness and fortitude, the mark of a truly great man. Yeah, I want to say that we're not like shitting on the concept of a clutch hit. You know, the idea of like clutch play is crucial to watching sports. And, you know, James and I are both fans of that. We don't want to like take the joy out of anybody. And there was real joy for non-Yankee fans and watching David Ortiz be like a Yankee killer and, and play really well against the Yankees and get these big hits. What we object to is this moral quality, this idea that somehow clutchness is like an ability that you can cultivate in you like a like a, an ethic or something. And I think that is the thing we really object to as bullshit, the way people use their feelings and biases and associations with A-Rod and Ortiz respectively to sort of unfairly draw this arbitrary line about who had this ability and who didn't, even though you could never consistently define it or find any real evidence of it. Yeah. And I I think it's important to say that like in this dichotomy, both the old timers and the stat heads are wrong and, and missing key points. Like they're like clutch hitting is fucking cool and like makes baseball a fun thing to watch because baseball is not just a thing that generates spreadsheet stats. And conversely, the stat heads kind of point to things that the old timers miss. And like, you know, there are ways of evaluating and uh, valuing and appreciating contributions that I think we we miss in, in some of the, the conventional wisdoms. And I think this 2005 MVP race, while it wasn't quite as simple as the old timers versus the stat heads, because the old guys like Joe Morgan, they couldn't really get on board with giving the award to a designated hitter. But it did feel like a referendum on stats. A-Rod had the better stats, but David Ortiz had the better character. People just liked him more. And so he nearly won, even though he was not nearly as valuable. And the truth was that both guys were integral to their teams that year, and both of them carried their teams in the final two months of the pennant race. The Red Sox were the only team that had worse pitching than the Yankees that year. Pedro Martinez had left in free agency, and Schilling spent most of 2005 recovering from his ankle injury. So even though they were in first place for most of the second half, and even though David Ortiz hit 22 home runs over the final two months, the Red Sox could not hold on to the division. In the division series, though, the clutch narrative continued. The Red Sox were swept by Chicago, but Ortiz hit 333 with three extra base hits. A-Rod, on the other hand, went 2-for-15 as the Yankees lost to the Angels in five games. Here it comes, a 
0-2. Ground ball toward first diving stop. Erstad underhand to Frankie. They got him. The ball game is over. The series is over. And the Angels win it. 5-3 over the Yankees. And the $200 million team falls a couple of bucks short tonight at the big game. I want to point out how stupid it is. This is what we, we we complained about the division series a few episodes ago in this in our A Rod Chronicles, but it is this is like a classic example of how it, it's so dumb. Like, so it, Ortiz had a great series. He hit three thirty three with all these extra base hits, and and A Rod had a terrible series. He went two for fifteen, but the difference between them was two hits. So Ortiz's 333 batting average was based on going four for 12 over three games. And A-Rod went two for 15 over five games. And he also got on base, I think, six or seven more times with walks and hit by pitches. So this idea that you can compare players based on how they do in such small, narrow slices of the game is a part of what reinforces this idea of clutchness being bullshit, right? This idea that like, look, Ortiz had a good series and A-Rod had a bad one. But we're talking about a a handful of games in a long season. Yeah, and this is another example of A-Rod suffering the consequences of being a Yankee without ever really getting, like, any of the benefits. Like, the lasting image of the 2005 ALDS is Gary Sheffield running into Bubba Crosby uh, for a ball in, in the gap between center and right. And, you know, you have, like, old defensive liability Gary Sheffield and below replacement player Bubba Crosby filling in for an aging Bernie Williams. And like, you know, is A-Rod supposed to play nine positions? It's not his fault. The Yankees broke camp that year with nobody below the age of 28. But in any case, just days after the Yankees were eliminated, prior Joe Morgan posted a Skip Bayless hit piece on A-Rod, which called him (sighs) C-Rod. Get it? Because it's like A instead of A, you get a C minus. Did you get the joke, James? <laughs> now that you pointed it out, I do. <laughs> so here are the damning facts Skip Bayless quoted about Rodriguez. A Rod's reaction, he left it all out on the field, he said. He tried his hardest, maybe too hard. He apologized to his teammates. These are the words of a player who has no idea what it takes to win. Now, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> A-Rod was now being criticized for trying his hardest and apologizing to his teammates. As Junior from Fire Joe Morgan wrote at the time, what exactly do you want him to say? I will now commit seppuku for dishonoring the team. But that was the standard Rodriguez was now held to. Nothing short of ritual suicide could make up for his sins. And A-Rod didn't really react well to that kind of pressure. When he collected his 2005 MVP award, he referred to the criticism he was getting. We can win three World Series with me, and it's never going to be over. My benchmark is so high that no matter what I do, it's never going to be enough. It was sort of like LeBron James's famous, I spoil people with my play comments. Kind of true, but it just sounds really whiny. Joe Torre, in his book, says that he told Rodriguez the same thing a few days prior to the ceremony, but he never actually dreamed A-Rod would say it out loud publicly. <laughs> Yeah, this is where we get into the like A-Rod as a personality part of the story where he really starts to crumble under these weird double standards he's held to. Like in his book, Tori says, like, like I had a private conversation with A-Rod and I basically said some version of no matter what you do here, you'll people will people will find fault. 
And then A-Rod goes out and like says it the, a couple of days later at the MVP ceremony. And Tori, like he says, like, I didn't even think that he I had to tell him this was not something you're supposed to say out loud. But of course, A-Rod doesn't realize it's like he doesn't know that you're not supposed to say that to reporters. You're not supposed to complain publicly about the double standard, even if you know it's real. If Alex was the subject of such intense scrutiny, though, it was at least partially because of what he represented about high priced free agents. Yeah, there's a bit of a tension in baseball's free agency process, one that was starting to really be exposed by the sabermetric revolution around the game at that time. Because free agency is how players get their big life-changing paydays. It's how labor claws back a share of the revenue generated by the sport. But on the other hand, you don't reach free agency until you have six years of service time, meaning you're older. It's pretty rare for anyone to reach free agency at the age of 25. As we talked about in chapter one, Alex Rodriguez only did it because he was called up at such a young age and he was such a phenom. But most of the time, when players sign big free agent contracts, they're 28, 29, 30 years old. And some of the findings in the post-Moneyball era really highlighted that a player's prime years of production typically come earlier than conventional wisdom had previously assumed, at ages like 25 to 27. The men, if you were signing a free agent, then you were often signing him after the best years of his career, meaning you were going to see a decline in production over the length of the contract. And that started to scare some general managers. And by the mid-2000s, the league was starting to realize this inefficiency inherent to free agency. And so the Yankees were really the only team left doubling down on the system as a team-building mechanism. And what the Yankees ended up with was an aging, expensive, flawed team. They would spend because they had to, and they were the Yankees. They would have a hole. They wouldn't be able to fill it. These things would compound. Kevin Brown wouldn't work out, so they'd have a hole in their rotation, so they'd sign Jarrett Wright to some big deal, and then he wouldn't work out, and then rinse, and then repeat. But as the Yankees became more and more expensive... They were A, much more resented around the league. And then there was just this general malaise around the team. Throughout the 2000s, they would almost always start slow, experience injuries, and realize their original plan for the season didn't make any sense. Then, through the heroics of A-Rod, Jeter, Jorge Posada, and an influx of young or cheap miracles who'd appear somewhere in June or July, guys like Robinson Cano, Aaron Small, Sean Chacon, or Jabba Chamberlain, the team would round into shape right in time for the playoffs. Yeah, what James is getting at is this period of what he calls malaise, and I think was represented an ongoing disappointment with a lot of the free agents. You know, as James said, big name guys like Kevin Brown, Randy Johnson, uh, Jared Wright, Carl Pavano, they didn't work out. And so they had to turn to, out of desperation to younger guys, cheaper guys in the middle of the season to kind of right the ship. And nobody became a poster boy for those disappointments more than the Yankees' highest paid player. Even as Alex Rodriguez wasn't performing poorly, he was still in his prime years and still performing at his peak. But at the end of the 2005 season, he was starting to feel the pressure created by the holes around him. Whether or not it was related to this pressure, 2006 would be one of the weirder years in Alex Rodriguez's history and Yankee history. For one, their big offseason move involved going out and signing a player away from the Red Sox. This was Johnny Damon, who they signed to play center field. It was pretty rare for them to go out and get a former Red Sox player. And I remember being very upset as a Yankee fan and a Bernie Williams fan going into that season. Also, for the first time in three years, the Yankees didn't try overhauling their rotation with a bunch of new free agents. That was what had caused so many problems in previous years. Instead, they relied on a full season of new addition Chin Ming Wong, 
as well as bounce back years from Mike Messina and Jared Wright. It actually worked. This was the first time since they'd added A-Rod that the Yankees allowed fewer runs than the league average. And also, the Yankees lineup was the best in baseball. But it wasn't really because of Alex, who had a down year by his standards. It was actually the guys around him that made the lineup so impressive in 06. Jorge Posada, Jason Giambi, Robinson Cano, they all had good years. And then there was Derek Jeter, who had one of his best seasons ever and nearly won an MVP award. Really, he should have won an MVP. I don't, no one really knows why Justin Morneau won it that year. <laughs> On the other hand, all A-Rod did was hit 35 home runs, lead the team in RBIs, and steal 15 bases. It actually was a disappointing year for him. His 35 homers was the, were the lowest of any season he didn't spend time on the disabled list. But the way people talked about A-Rod in 2006, you'd think he'd lost the ability to swing a bat. All season long, there was speculation about what was wrong with A-Rod. This is in a year when he had 299 total bases, which is roughly what Don Mattingly averaged in a full season, by the way. And he had an on-base percentage of 392, which would have been the highest of Cal Ripken Jr.'s whole career. In September... Tom Verducci wrote a piece for Sports Illustrated entitled A-Rod Agonistes, and it is a truly crazy document, a perfect encapsulation of how Rodriguez was discussed in 2006. This is one of the opening paragraphs. The richest and most talented player in baseball was in trouble. Rodriguez could not hit an average fastball, could not swat home runs in batting practice with any regularity, could not field a ground ball or throw from third base with an uncluttered mind and cooperative feet could not step to the plate at Yankee Stadium without being booed, and could not, though he seemed unaware of this, find full support in his own clubhouse. With all that going on, he had a pretty good year, considering. <laughs> Again, they, they talk about him like he is hitting, like, 150. and he <laughs> It's like, you can't throw to first base without an uncluttered mind? This, this is the way my Little League coaches used to talk about me. <laughs> like, this is how embarrassed <laughs> they were by Aaron. So there's a lot going on here, uh, particularly the linking of the adjectives richest and most talented to the speculations about his psychological state. And then you got the insinuations that nobody likes Alex. So much of this, of the later parts of this article are just other players anonymously trashing A-Rod, including a teammate who says he thinks there's something wrong with Rodriguez's eyes and another who thinks he's afraid of the ball. Again, he hit 290 with 35 <laughs> home runs and 121 RBIs, and they think he's blind and afraid of the ball. A lot of shit talking coming from players who are like, you know, not Hall of Fame capable players. Uh, there's a truly sad part of the article where Verducci asks Arod who he turns to when times are tough, and after mentioning his wife. He looks around the clubhouse in silence for 10 seconds before then naming Mariano Rivera and Rob Thompson, the team's special assignment coach. Look, we don't want to pretend everything was hunky-dory for Alex in 2006. He did slump in June, although, as he explained to Sports Illustrated, he was playing through an illness that month, and his strikeout rate was higher than usual that season. His defense suffered, reaching the lowest point it ever would as a third baseman, A-Rod himself called it the most difficult year of his career. But when you read the story now, it's clear what, that what's so difficult is the way everyone around him seemed waiting for him to fail. Making matters worse is that Alex knew they were all waiting for him to fail, and he couldn't talk about why. At one point in the article, Verducci asks A-Rod why the criticism of him is so amplified, and Rodriguez just says, we know why. But he doesn't actually say the reason. Verducci offers the contract, and A-Rod just nods. 
It's like he knows he can't even say it out loud. Like the hired goons of capital will come bounding out of shadows and beat him over the head if he acknowledges that the subtext of all this criticism is. Players don't deserve all this money. But of course, it wasn't just owners who hated him. It was other players who resented him and held him to a higher standard. Yeah, there's another famous part of the Sports Illustrated story, and we don't really mean to keep focusing on this one story, but it's just so good. Uh, And it's where Jason Giambi approaches Rodriguez during a series in Boston. And I guess credit to Giambi, because so much of the trashing of A-Rod in the story is anonymous, and at least his name is attached to this. Uh, But A-Rod, so Giambi approaches A-Rod during the series, and he says, we're all rooting for you, and we're behind you 100%, but you've got to get the big hit. What do you mean, was Rodriguez's response, according to Giambi. I've had five hits in Boston. And we're going to uncensor this part because we're allowed to say fuck on this podcast. Giambi goes, you fucking call those hits? You had two fucking dinkers to right field and a ball that bounced over the third baseman. Look at how many pitches you missed. When you hit three, four, five in the order, you have to get the big hits, especially if they're going to walk Bobby and me. That's referring to Bobby Abreu. I'll help you out until you get going. I'll look to drive in runs when they pitch around me. Go after that three and one pitch that might be a ball. But if they're going to walk Bobby and me, you're going to have to be the guy. Heaven forbid... Jorge Posada come up to bat with runners on. Now, I want to put in perspective exactly what happened in the games Giambi is talking about. Alex was 5 for 13 with three doubles, four walks, and five RBIs. That's two more than Giambi had himself at that point in the series, by the way. In those three games, the Yankees scored 39 runs. <laughs> what on earth was Giambi complaining about? This was the middle of a historic five-game sweep of Boston, something that we sometimes refer to as the 2006 Boston Massacre, although I think they've stopped using that term ever since the uh, marathon bombing. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that featured the New York lineup operating at its highest level, and Giambi was picking apart the fact that Rodriguez's five hits didn't, what, have enough exit velocity? What is he complaining about? It is just an example of the insane scrutiny that Rodriguez is under. Over and over again in this Sports Illustrated piece and in the media throughout that season, people will confront A-Rod about his supposed slump, and his response is something like, you know, things really aren't that bad. And everyone just goes, oh, bless his heart. He doesn't realize. But he was right, and everybody else was crazy. That's why it was such a stressful season. He was like the only sane person in the round, in the room. All of that scrutiny came to a head on the most infamous play of the season, the pop-up. This is big for uh, lefty specialist lore because, uh, John, you and I were actually at that game. We were? Yeah. I have no recollection of this. Are you sure? Yeah. And because of our sworn commitment to never leave the Yankee game early, we were there. And we were on the left-hand side of the, the infield, too. Um, it's a hot August day. There's two outs in the sixth inning of a game in New York. The Yankees were already losing 9-2. to two to the lowly Baltimore Orioles. And then this happened. Popped up, third base side, A-Rod and Jeter, and who's gonna get it? They drop it! Oh, man! This is uh, this is an amnesia game. for They wanna forget they played this one. Ooh. What else could go wrong? I think Jeter thought he caught it. It was an embarrassing play where Jeter tried to call off A-Rod on an easy pop-up, but instead they bumped into each other and dropped the ball. A run scored, Jeter was charged with an error, and to top it all off, the next hitter, Fernando Tatis Sr., hit a two-run homer to make it 12-2. And look, 
these things happened and it was really tough to watch not just for the play itself but for how Jeter glares at Rodriguez after it happens the reason you hear Al Leiter say Jeter thought he caught it is that Jeter doesn't even move to pick up the ball because he's just staring at Alex but I'm pretty sure he knew what happened he was just pissed the play fueled even more rumors that there was some rift between Jeter and A-Rod that they could not stand each other and that this feud could explain any shortcomings in their play. During A-Rod's supposed slump this year, there were constant questions of why Jeter didn't defend him or tell the fans not to boo. Jeter always demurred. That's not my job. I can't tell the fans what to do. Things like that. But that only reinforced the idea that he wanted Alex to fail and to suffer. And then this pop-up seemed like proof that this tension in the clubhouse was causing the slump. Which, again, was already basically over. This play was actually the day before the team went to Boston for the aforementioned Boston Massacre. So even though it became the symbol of tension in the clubhouse, it didn't really impact the team, and they actually won the AL East pretty easily that year. But it gives you a sense of how the eyes were on Rodriguez going into the postseason. And then A-Rod promptly had the worst playoff series of his career. This time, there was no sugarcoating it. He didn't play well for half the series like in 2004 or get on base like in 2005. He simply just stunk. He was 1 for 14 without an extra base hit or a walk. He also made an error that cost the team a run in game four. And it wasn't just that he was bad. It was how the team expected him to be bad. When filling out the lineup card for game one, manager Joe Torre put Rodriguez in the sixth spot in the lineup. Sixth. A-Rod hadn't batted that low since he was moved to the two-spot in Seattle in 1996. Torrey tried to downplay it, saying only that he was splitting up the lineup's lefties, but that was bullshit. The guy hitting cleanup, Gary Sheffield, was a righty who'd only had 28 at-bats since coming off the disabled list. And Alex wasn't even slumping at this point. He'd had a good September. This was clearly just a vote of no confidence. Two games later... Torrey benched Sheffield and moved A-Rod back to cleanup to give him a shot in the arm. That was only one night. In the final game of the series, with the Yankees on the brink of elimination, Torrey dropped Rodriguez all the way to eighth. Eighth! <laughs> That's one away from the bottom. What? What possible reason? <laughs> it really was like, I, I'm trying to remember the emotion or the feeling as a fan watching those games when they would put the lineup on there and just thinking like they were doing this, they were like ganging up on Alex to do it. Like he was like putting him eighth made no sense. It was, he was having a bad series and look, you know, we get like, there's no defending it, but it, wow. I mean, what, what, what did they expect? At that point, just bench him. Like what? <laughs> yeah, honestly, like why put him in the lineup if you do, if you're going to bat him eighth? It was only the second time in his whole career he had batted eighth. And Tori said he was just trying to shake things up again, but it seemed like he was trying to humiliate A Rod. It certainly didn't help him or the team. A Rod then went 0 for three, and the team was held scoreless until the seventh inning, when they were already down eight nothing. The Yankees lost their third postseason series in a row and looked almost lifeless in the process. What had been touted going into the playoffs as possibly the best lineup ever, what opposing manager Jim Leland had called uh, Murderer's Row and then Cano. Real shot at Robinson Cano. Well, he was only in like his second full year at the time. So yeah. He, he almost won a batting title that year. Yeah, but he just wasn't, he didn't have the pedigree of the rest of the lineup. Well, Murderer's Row and then Cano managed only six runs over the final three games. Derek Jeter and Jorge Posada, the two true Yankees who were on those championship teams, they played great, 
combining to go 15 for 30 with two home runs and five doubles. But the rest of the team was trash, hitting only 173 with a mere four extra base hits in that division series. And Rodriguez was the most conspicuous failure. It never changes, he told the press, but it wasn't obvious if by it he meant the pressure or the attention or the feeling of failure or something totally different. Going into that offseason, there was talk that Rodriguez was irreparably broken. His relationship with Joe Torre certainly seemed strained after the manager had dropped him in the order, and there were rumors that the Yankees were going to fire Torre and bring in Lou Pinella, Alex's old manager from Seattle. The thinking was that they needed to bring someone in who knew how to penetrate A-Rod's psyche. But some people thought the Yankees should just dump A-Rod altogether, see if they could trade him away or you know find someone to take him off their hands. For the record, the Yankees probably should have done that. <laughs> you mean traded A-Rod or fired Torre? Fired Tory. I mean, I will say his treatment of A-Rod in general was not good and his handling of the series was terrible. But researching for this podcast has given me a new deal of respect for Joe Tory. The fact that he managed, as we say, these teams that there was this malaise around and he kept them in the playoffs, even though, as we've been pointing out, they were not very good. Like the, the A-Rod, they had no pitching in those years and yet they kept making the playoffs. But Torrey would only last one more year. So if they're, you know, if, if that's true, maybe they should have just gotten rid of him. At Fire Joe Morgan, they spent much of that offseason sifting through insane criticisms of Alex, particularly after another shortstop, David Eckstein, won World Series MVP. Eckstein was sort of Arod's opposite in every conceivable way. For one, he did not seem to possess any baseball talent. He was short and his arm was famously weak. He wasn't especially fast and he didn't hit for much power. But everyone loved Eckstein. They highlighted every good thing he ever did on a baseball field, probably because it always looked so surprising. And the praise was always way out of proportion with his actual accomplishments. People couldn't talk about him without using words like heart and grit and scrappy. He was a magnet for insane talk about his intangible value that was impossible to quantify. You know, in contrast to somebody like A-Rod, who had so much quantifiable value and was mercilessly attacked for never doing enough. And look, Exline was a good guy. He seemed to be a good sport about the way he was treated by the press. He acknowledged it was over the top. After he retired, when one of the Fire Joe Morgan guys wrote Eckstein's name into a fake law firm on the NBC show Parks and Recreation, Eckstein filmed a commercial for the fake law firm. Do you not understand the unwritten laws of baseball because no one has written them down? Well, now you can. Hi, I'm David Eckstein of BatBip, Pakoda, Vorp, and Eckstein, attorneys at law, Pawnee's premier legal service a lot of lawyers will throw statistics at you, like how many cases they've won or that they went to law school. Well, I have a number for you. Four. It's the number of chambers in the best law book money can buy. My heart. So call the law offices of Babip, Pakoto, Vorp, and Eckstein. Let me save you from capital punishment by dishing out some gritty scrapital punishment. David Eckstein's a career two-way hitter made no errors in 2010. David Eckstein's not a real lawyer. But after the 2006 World Series, Fire Joe Morgan wrote maybe the definitive piece on the way the media treated these two baseball players. I'm going to read from it at length. In case any of you are wondering, we here at Fire Joe Morgan do not hate David Eckstein. What we hate is bad sports journalism, and there has been a lot of it recently. Apparently, nothing brings out the cliche machines faster than a small man who plays sports. David Eckstein started the World Series 0 for 11. Did anyone hear anything about how bad Eck was in the clutch? No, no one heard that. If Alex Rodriguez had an 0 for 11 slump in three playoff games, the hand-wringing and typewriter pounding would have been deafening. How do I know this? Because a did do that, and that did happen. 
The point is, A-Rod is a large human who makes a lot of money. Eck is a small human who makes less money. Their career performances during the regular season and during the playoffs indicate beyond a shadow of a fraction of a smidgen of a Blorgan of a Flernson of a doubt that Alex Rodriguez is the better player by like 11 standard deviations. And yet no one writes anything good about A-Rod these days and everyone writes good things about Eckstein. Does no one in the world remember the 2000 ALCS when A-Rod was 9 for 22 with two home runs and put up this line, 409, 480, 773? Does anyone realize that, by the way, we remember that here at the A-Rod Chronicles. <laughs> so that's who remembers that. Does anyone realize that in the last two series Eck played in before the NLCS, he put up a scrappy little 6 for 35 with six singles? Does anyone care? Well, we do, because people love to attack big, rich guys and love to praise small, little, scrappy guys, no matter what the actual facts of their performances tell us. There was, I, we read all that because there was perhaps no better summation of how the media divided people based on vibes in the era immediately after Moneyball. You listeners probably will not be uh, surprised to hear that. Fire Joe Morgan was pretty formative for the lefty special. <laughs> it was, I think, a formative moment for baseball. Any baseball fan of that, you know, paying attention in that era, you had to read Fire Joe Morgan. The Yankees, of course, did not end up trading Alex or firing Tory yet, or really making any splashing moves that offseason. But there was a cloud hanging over A-Rod, what one reporter referred to as this weird vibe that has hung over this, his entire Yankee existence every step of the way. It, it might be worth noting that in the, uh, in the Captain documentary about Derek Jeter, it's heavily implied that the press referred to him as Fredo. <laughs> <laughs> On the first day of spring training in 2007, Rodriguez tried to address that vibe, telling the press, let's make a contract. You don't ask me about Derek anymore, and I promise I'll stop lying to all you guys. He acknowledged that he and Jeter were not close friends anymore, but said the speculation about some kind of feud was silly. I think it's important to cut the shit. It is what it is. I think when you get into all the shit, people start assuming that things are a lot worse than what they really are. But they're obviously not as great as they used to be. We were like blood brothers. The reality is there's been a change in the relationship over 14 years, and hopefully we can just put it behind us. Do we go to get dinner together like we used to? No but you don't have to go to dinner with a guy four or five times a week to do what you do. When he was asked how he felt about Jeter not coming to his defense during all the negative attention the previous season, he said, I'm a big boy. I'm 31 years old now. I should be able to help myself. There really was such a poignant story here in the messy truth about Jeter and A-Rod's relationship, about people growing apart as they get older, about a few regrettable comments taking on outsized proportion, about things just being awkward and uncomfortable around someone you used to consider a dear friend. But the media was fixated on the simplistic feud story. Even when Alex made this confession, people dismissed it as yet another attempt to control his own image. But whether because he himself felt unburdened or because he was just A-Rod and it was only a matter of time before he reverted back to his natural place atop the game, 2007 was a bounce-back season for A-Rod. It was... And we promise, this is the last time we're going to say it, arguably the best season of his career. We really promise. This is it. <laughs> we're at the end of the, the best, arguably best seasons. Uh, I mean, maybe we shouldn't say that too much. Maybe we want to make the argument for 09. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. Let's. We won't spoil anything, but we're probably not going to say it again. 
He led the league in runs scored, home runs, RBIs, slugging percentage, OPS, OPS plus, and total bases. His 54 home runs in 07 were a record for Yankee right-handers until Aaron Judge broke it last year. He even had his best base running season as a Yankee, and his defense bounced back from a dreadful 2006. A-Rod's dominance started from the very first week of the season. He hit a two-run homer and a win on opening day, and then five days later, with the Yankees on the verge of dropping three in a row, he came up with the bases loaded and two outs in the ninth inning. A 1-2. Driven deep to center field. Going back, Patterson. Still back. See ya! A game-winning walk-off grand slam for Alex Rodriguez. And for one Saturday afternoon here in the Bronx, A-Rod answers the critics with a huge, huge grand slam to win the game for the Yankees. Then, less than two weeks later, he came up again with two outs in the ninth, and the team down a run with runners on base. Single probably wins the game, the 1-0. Driven deep to center field. Going back, Sizemore, still back. See ya! Another walk-off home run for Alex Rodriguez. A three-run shot, and the Yankees win 8-6. Pandemonium in the Bronx. Can you be hotter than Alex Rodriguez? Overall, he hit 14 home runs in April, which is still a record. Actually, he hit 14 home runs in the first 18 games. He really cooled off in the last week of April and didn't even hit a home run. So it's pretty more, it's even more remarkable than that. And he really carried the team, which was otherwise struggling. Their pitching staff was dealing with injuries, and most of the lineup besides Alex got off to slow starts that year. I remember Carl Pavano was the opening day starter this year. Yeah, this is, again, things were bleak in 2007. <laughs> After that second walk-off homer for A-Rod, the Yankees started a seven-game losing streak that left them 8-13. and They wouldn't get back above 500 until mid-June yet again, and wouldn't stay there until July. Luckily, though, the team had Rodriguez, who carried them all year. The MVP race was more or less over by July. It wasn't just that Alex was hitting. He was getting big hits. If you look at those high-leverage numbers the ones that were wielded against A-Rod in the 2005 MVP race. In 2007, his numbers went up in those situations. With two outs and runners in scoring position, his slugging percentage improved by over 100 points. If you were still clinging to A-Rod's not-clutch narrative, this season should have disproved that. But it didn't really matter. By now, the you-can't-win-with-A-Rod narrative was so firmly established that none of these facts really mattered to the hardcore A-Rod haters. Attempts to dismiss Alex's 2007 season really reached levels of parody. We don't want to spend too much time harping on every crazy thing written about him that year, but I would encourage you to go to Fire Joe Morgan. The site still exists. You can read all the crazy shit that was written about Alex Rodriguez in 2007. It's insane stuff. At one point in August, when Alex was stuck on 499 career home runs, Ian O'Connor, he was a beat writer for the Yankees, and he suffered from really crazy levels of A-Rod brain poisoning. He wrote a whole piece excoriating Alex for daring to go eight games without hitting a home run. But O'Connor and the rest of them kept coming back to the same thing. Will Alex be able to do it in the playoffs? The whole season was seen as a prelude to the real test that would come in the postseason. And for a minute, it looked like the Yankees might not even make the playoffs. Thanks to their slow start in 2007, 
After winning the ALEs for nine straight years, that year they didn't spend a single day alone in first place. They finished two games behind Boston, but they did easily win the wild card. So that set up a, a division series against Cleveland. And then Alex had another frustrating American League division series. It wasn't as miserable as the series against Detroit had been. It was kind of meh. He was four for 15 with two walks and a home run, but he struck out six times and he was 0 for three with runners in scoring position. His big at bat came in game two. That was the infamous midge game when a swarm of insects from Lake Erie descended on progressive field, rattling Jabba Chamberlain in the eighth inning until he coughed up a one nothing lead. But Alex had a chance to put the Yankees back on top in the ninth when Bobby Abreu singled and stole second with two outs. But A-Rod struck out for the third time that game against Roberto Hernandez, who was then known as Fausto Carmona. Great battle here in the ninth inning for Alex Rodriguez. I really think it speaks to the confidence Eric Wedge has in his young pitcher that they're even pitching to A-Rod in this situation. This guy hit over 50 home runs, drove in over 150 on the season. You got a base open at first, would set up a force play anywhere in the infield to possibly get out of the inning, but they choose to go after A-Rod. Collectively, the Yankees managed only three hits over 11 innings. Cleveland's great pitching that day was overshadowed by the Bugs. Really, the Yankees were undone in that series by two bad outings from Chinming Wong. He had been their ace all season long, but he combined to give up 12 runs in under six innings, so the Yankees were playing from behind basically the whole series. In Game 4, they were down 6-1 to one at one point. A-Rod homered in the 7th to make it 6-3, and Fox flashed a graphic on the screen. First postseason home run since 2004. That was three years ago, but in total, it was 16 games. Not a great 16 games, at times quite bad, but 16 total games in a career that by then was nearly 15 years old. If it wasn't Alex Rodriguez, nobody would have paid any attention to this middling division series performance. The great Derek Jeter was 3 for 17 against Cleveland, and nobody really noticed. Jorge Posada was 2 for 15, Hideki Matsui 2 for 11, same thing. But because everyone had spent the whole season building this four-game stretch into the ultimate test of Alex's clutch ability, the only conclusion was that he failed. Making matters worse is that the Red Sox were on their way to their second World Series title since the trade that sent Rodriguez from Texas to New York. Boston had tried to break the curse by getting Alex. Instead, they broke it by sending him to the Yankees. Hanging over the whole thing was A-Rod's contract. Not just in the general sort of way that it always hung over everything about Alex forever, but actually, he had a clause in his contract allowing him to opt out after the 2007 season, and now that his year was over, the speculation about whether he would exercise this option ramped up. Despite this perception that the Yankees were done with A-Rod, they actually made several overtures to prevent that from happening, even breaking their usual no-negotiations-during-the-season policy by trying to work out an extension during the year. It was Rodriguez and his agent Boris who rebuffed them, waiting to negotiate until the end of the season. But this created a conflict. See, the Yankees were publicly adamant that if Alex opted out of his contract, they would not negotiate with him for a new one. The issue for them was that at the, the moment, Rodriguez still had three years and about $81 million left on his deal, but around $25 million of that was still being paid by the Texas Rangers. That was what had been agreed to in the trade in 2004. But if A-Rod opted out, then that contract was void and the Texas Rangers were off the hook. So the Yankees wanted any extra years to be added to the current deal. 
not negotiated as a new contract. On the other hand, that's not really how A-Rod's agent, Scott Boris, liked to operate. Boris's whole deal was to try to drum up a bidding war by getting as many suitors as possible. He never liked to take hometown discounts or team-friendly extensions. Boris was known to always push his clients into free agency and see what they could get on the open market. But Rodriguez couldn't talk to other teams as long as he was under contract with the Yankees. The only way he could solicit other bids was by opting out. So it was in the context of this that news of A-Rod opting out leaked during the 2007 World Series. Closer for Colorado gets loose. There is big news brewing, and for that, we go down to the field and check in with Ken Rosenthal. Joe, I just spoke with Scott Boris, and he confirmed that Alex Rodriguez has decided to opt out of his contract with the Yankees. Boris said that Rodriguez made this decision today, and he made it because he's uncertain about the future composition of the Yankees. A-Rod needed to make this call within 10 days of the conclusion of the World Series. By then, he probably will not know if Jorge Posada is back, if Andy Pettit is back, if Mariano Rivera is back. He's also unsure about how the Yankees' ownership transition will play out. Boris said he's willing to continue negotiating with the Yankees, but the Yankees have been adamant that they will not negotiate with A-Rod if he opts out because now they will lose the $21 million they would receive from the Rangers over the final three years of his deal. All right, Kenny, thank you. That's big news. And again, it, is, Ken just said- it was just three weeks after another unceremonious first-round exit, and now Alex seemed like he was trying to upstage baseball's biggest event that also happened to be the event he had never himself made it to. The jokes wrote themselves. This is the only way A-Rod can make the World Series. Now both Alex and his agent, Scott Boris, would later say it was Boris who released the statement that when he did without consulting Alex. And even though the purported reasons for opting out in the statement were the uncertainty around the Yankees, Rodriguez would say Boris told him that it was the Yankees who weren't interested in signing him. It seems like what probably happened, and we're obviously not reporters, we're just reading between the lines here, but what probably happened is that Scott Boris wanted Alex to opt out so he could shop Rodriguez's services around the league, but he had to talk A-Rod into it since Alex likely didn't want a repeat of what happened in 2000 when he hurt his reputation and ended up stuck in Texas. And there were newspaper reports that came out the same day as the news leaked that the Yankees were prepared to offer Rodriguez an extension of around five years and 25 to 30 million per season. So maybe Boris felt like he had to jump the gun and leak the opt-out story a little early so Alex couldn't change his mind. But there's another explanation that lends itself, especially if you're inclined to be critical of A-Rod. And this is that Alex was looking for a way out of New York and did want another splashy deal, only to realize too late it wasn't out there for him. Seven years earlier, Alex Rodriguez is a 25-year-old shortstop with unlimited potential coming off a heroic postseason. Now he was a 32-year-old third baseman with a badly damaged reputation and coming off four straight disappointing playoff performances. More to the point, this was not the free agent bonanza he had entered in 2000 when money was flooding into baseball and making its way to the labor force. By 2007, the economy was heading towards the Great Recession and Major League Baseball was beginning to enter its Moneyball era when the insights of blogs like Fire Joe Morgan were starting to go mainstream. And one of those insights was to stay away from long-term contracts like the one Alex was looking for. We don't want to exaggerate here. Those contracts still got signed, and it took years for those insights to really be completely adopted. But teams were learning to win the money ball way. 
the cheap way, at least the non-Yankees teams. In 2001, the first year of Alex's big contract, not a single Yankee was among the top five highest paid players in baseball, and only two Yankees were in the top 15. By 2008, the three highest paid guys were Yankees, and they had five of the top 13. Now, if you wanted a big contract, the Yankees were kind of the only game in town. Whatever the explanation, within a few weeks, reports came out that Alex was regretting his decision to opt out and not even speaking to Boris anymore. On the advice of, of all people, Warren Buffett, I don't know how they know each other, although it's weird that this is the second time A-Rod has cut Boris out and got the advice of some random businessman to negotiate a contract. Probably uh, too benefit both times too <laughs> yes very weird stuff uh arod reached out to the steinbrenner family directly offered to sit down without his agent and eventually they reached an agreement the yankees had been willing to go to seven years and around 30 million per season which when you combine that with the three years that had been left on the original deal would have been 10 years at roughly 300 million dollars they kept to that offer but they insisted that alex had to make up for the lost subsidy from the rangers so the final deal was 10 years and 275 million which would keep alex in pinstripes until he was 42 years old there was one other element to the deal which was that the two sides negotiated bonus payments for certain milestone home runs rodriguez who in 2007 became the youngest player to hit 500 in career home runs would get $6 million when he tied Willie Mays, Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, and Barry Bonds, plus another $6 million if he set the all-time record. For A-Rod, it seemed like a matter of time before he would become baseball's home run king. After all, if he played the 10 years he had just signed for, he wouldn't even have to average 25 homers a year to get there. Meanwhile, he'd only hit fewer than 35 in a full season once in his career to that point. Technically, these bonuses were all quote-unquote marketing agreements because the Yankees figured they'd be able to sell tickets and hype this coming home run chase. How could Alex, who'd seen so much damage to his reputation over the years, be marketable? Well, people would be rooting for A-Rod to set the record. And not just Yankee fans, because just that year, Hank Aaron had been passed at the top of the all-time home run leaderboard by one of the few guys in baseball more disliked than Alex. Barry Bonds. Since Bonds had been linked to steroids, few people wanted him to stay baseball's home run king, and so Rodriguez was seen as their great queen hope. But that idea wouldn't last for long. See, Alex's name was already on a list of steroid users. It had been for years, even though nobody knew it. But that list was about to become public. Chapter 5 brings us to the end of the 2007 season, by which point Alex had 518 career home runs and 94.5 career wins above replacement, according to Baseball Reference. In his 2006 season, the year when everyone expressed such concern about his calamitous regression, A-Rod had a 392 on base percentage with 35 home runs, 121 RBIs, and 15 stolen bases. His war that season was 4.5. Justin Morneau, who won the American League MVP in 2006, had a war of 4.3 with a 375 on base percentage to go with 34 home runs and 130 RBIs. So A-Rod's worst year ever, he was roughly as good as the MVP of the league. The A-Rod Chronicles is an undrafted production brought to you by us, the Lefty Specialists, written, edited, and produced by the Lefty Specialists. Music composed by Lonnie Ginsberg. Until next week. <laughs>